So if you've been around for a while, you might know that we're doing a series on the Spirit at the moment. Uh, If you're new here, what we like to do in the second half of the year is pick a topic that most of us are really uncomfortable with (laughs) and dive into it and see if we can uh, restore a positive relationship with said topic. Uh, We've done the Bible and prayer and spirituality and a few others. Um, This one, the Spirit, evokes very varied reactions, even within single humans, uh, of excitement and terror and confusion and absence of emotion completely. Um, So we've spent a while kind of exploring what our community's experience with the Spirit is, and then we've spent some time trying to work out what questions we'd like to ask, what things we'd like to discuss, um, what hopes we have for our relationship with this topic, or in particular with this one, with the Spirit, Um, And then what roadblocks we have, what things that kind of prevent us from going there. And for some of us who come from um, backgrounds where we don't, where the spirit isn't really talked about, um, it's kind of like a little bit of a blank slate, maybe with some caution and maybe with some hope. Some people in our community have been through immense trauma in their relationship with the spirit as they've been subjected to various practices which have been really unhelpful. Um, We have spent... Yeah, sorry for being so inconvenient, Emmy. I really am getting in the way. Um, we um, have spent a bit of time talking about um, the Spirit in the Hebrew Bible, and we're about to move on next week into the Spirit in the New Testament. But uh, because we had my friend Frosty here this week, we thought who um, did his PhD in pneumatology, which is the Spirit. No, it's only the beginning. We're just getting started. Some people really want us to get to the Jesus juice really quickly. So, but some people are going to have to learn how to be patient, be patient, don't be in such a hurry. Did anyone else grow up with Salty's songbook? Yeah, excellent, good. Glad you've all been parented well then. Um, Yes, anyway, so um, my friend Frosty, who I'll um, introduce in just a moment, is here, and uh, we thought we'd actually look at Pentecostalism and the roots of Pentecostalism, and that might sound like uh, a not very interesting um, topic, but there are some things in early Pentecostalism that I think actually um, gel really well with the spirit of this community, Um, and unless you've studied Pentecostalism, you probably only know about what's happened in Pentecostalism in more recent times and what that looks like. But it hasn't always looked that way. Um, and it had really fascinating beginnings. So um, my friend Frosty, Michael Frost, a.k.a. the good Michael Frost, as opposed to uh, the other Australian Michael Frost, who's also fine, but he's not our Michael Frost, um, is a Kiwi and a friend of mine. Um, he teaches at Alpha Christus College in New Zealand. Uh, he also uh, is part of a collaborative leadership team at Edge Kingsland Church. Uh, and he also hosts a podcast called In the Shift, which some of you have been listening along to, and I think is just tops. Um, and yeah, he's a new dad, which is really nice. He's missing his son because his son's in Perth this week, so he's cuddling my son a lot, which is nice. Um, but yeah, he's uh, coming to hang out with us, so we thought, uh, since he did his PhD in this area, that we'd get him to talk a little bit about early Pentecostalism. So, Mr. Michael Frost. You can clap, I guess. Sure. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, great. Hey, Hemi. What's happening? 
Um, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. Nice to be here. Uh, I've sort of been around long enough to have come back here a number of times over the years now, which is kind of, it's really lovely to keep coming back to a community and feel at home somewhere else. And that's kind of how I feel here. Um, this is an interesting topic for me because it's, you know, even as Shane's talking about sometimes what goes on inside of a person uh, can be varied even within the one person. And I think talking about the spirit, talking about Pentecostalism itself is like that for me. Um, I have a complicated internal relationship with all of these things. Because of my own history as growing up as a, a kid in the Pentecostal church, which was a very kind of intense spiritual environment. Um, and then um, after a brief dabbling in a science career, um, devoted myself to the Lord in, in terms of going to work for the church and then somehow ended up studying theology. And starting off my, my, some of my postgrad study in theology, looking at Pentecostalism and Pentecostal spirituality, and then by the end of all of that, just feeling much less aligned <laughs> with some aspects of that tradition than I started out. Um, so this weird experience of sort of having a PhD in pneumatology, spirituality, and, and looking at Pentecostal charismatic spirituality whilst no longer really um, identifying so personally with that tradition, which is, you know, an interesting kind of process to go through. Um, having said all of that, just as my own internal relationship is mixed, because I also have some really meaningful experiences in my own story that no matter how uncomfortable I get with them, still are meaningful to me, still form a part of my own story of faith. And, um, and I guess that's how I feel sometimes when I look at the, maybe the history of the church more broadly, which is its own complicated thing, right? Um, and our tendency is to characterize things as all good or all bad quite easily. And that's just very seldom the case. Um, just as we are mixtures of people, uh, so our traditions are also mixtures of things. So um, I have this weird experience of probably having read more books on Pentecostalism than I ever would have thought there were books on Pentecostalism. Um, and so I have all of this stuff in my head, which is um, interesting to reflect on. Uh, what I want to do this morning is talk a little bit about as Shane said, some of the origins of what we now call the Pentecostal movement. Uh, and some of the things that were going on there that I do find still interesting and um, invite us to think about the spirit in particular kinds of ways that might still be useful for us. So um, that's what I want to do. Um, if we think about where how we arrived at having this kind of Pentecostal charismatic spirituality or, or tradition. Essentially what we mean by that is people whose tradition of Christian faith is centered around a desire to experience or to encounter. So I'm aware that some of you will have come perhaps from that kind of tradition and some of you will have not at all. But growing up in like a Pentecostal church, um, every aspect of spirituality is about leading to some form of encounter or some kind of experience. So singing together is not just about having nice tunes together. It's that you would have some, it would lead to some kind of encounter with the spirit that would transform you. 
if you are a preacher in a Pentecostal church, then you don't want to just share good ideas. You want people to ultimately have an encounter or an experience of some kind. Um, and that can sometimes make people uncomfortable because uh, the nature of those experiences varies wildly and can sometimes be quite unusual. So if we go back a little bit in time to the 1800s, um, essentially what's, what's happening at that time is that you've got, um, in, the, in the West in particular, you've got this kind of enlightenment process that's happened. So this movement from sort of a, a very religiously dominated society, dominated by the church and by the Christian tradition and Christian ecclesial kind of, or church-based authorities, and then the emergence of science and uh, this move toward, move away from the authority of the church and of religion. Uh, and this very kind of rational intellectual shift that was taking place in the West. And what happened amongst some aspects of the church is this desire to um, claim some kind of dynamic vitality. They, they saw this creeping rationality and intellectualism as somehow the enemy of faith or as something to be transcended or overcome. And so you get this kind of revivalist Christianity that starts springing up. In particular, I guess the way the history is told, it's across North America and Europe. In reality, it's, it's forms of spirituality that have probably been elsewhere for much longer, um, but the history books are written by white people from North America and Europe, so... Uh, that's the way the narrative gets told. Um, but there's this real desire to say, well, we don't just want some kind of set of ideas. Um, we want to get back, or we want to get to some form of spirituality or Christianity that is deeply personal and powerful. And um, so they saw, um, you know, some of them talk about the dry rot of orthodoxy, um, which is essentially to say, they looked around at churches and said, you have no power, you have no experience, all you have is a set of ideas. And so you get um, some of the great revivalist preachers traveling across, uh, holding these sort of revivalist meetings where people were encouraged to have some kind of experience. It's the first time um, Phoebe Palmer, who's one of these, uh, particularly happens in kind of the Methodist versions of Christianity uh, in North America, for example, um, a woman called Phoebe Palmer first decided, you know, came up with this idea of an altar call or altar ministry, which is where people would come to the front and receive some kind of prayer. If you've been in any kind of Pentecostal type church, you will know that experience um, of going to the front where I guess the, the Holy Spirit apparently is hanging out more often at the front than at the back. Um, and so these modes of spirituality that were seeking some kind of experience or encounter to be had. Um, and this takes all sorts of various forms and different particular um, revivalist preachers and leaders pop up and try and, um, or, and, and, you know, in some ways create quite a movement of this kind of desire for something to experience and something of the spirit. And all of these ideas about the spirit um, which really, in, in many respects, had been lost in the institutional history of the church were now trying to be reached for and reclaimed in some kind of way. 
So this takes us to kind of the turn of the century, um, around 1900. And if you read an American, I mean, this is an American story, um, but it's one story that is in some ways representative of different things that were happening around the place. Uh, so there was a man by the name of Charles Fox Parham, and he was a curious fellow. Um, curious maybe is not the right word. I don't know what the right word for him is. He's a conundrum. He's um, a KKK sympathizer and a theology teacher, <laughs> which in the US at that time is probably not an unusual mix. And he's teaching this Bible study class. When I say theology teacher, I mean that in very loose terms. You know, he's, the idea of experience is that in some way I'm just sort of receiving these revelations that I can pass on to people. So he had a, he had a study group, and they were working through the New Testament together, and we're trying to figure out, well, how do we know if we have the Spirit or not? And so they read the book of Acts, and they all decided that, um, that the way you know if you've got the Spirit or not is that you speak in tongues. And so they all decide that that's a good idea. They gather around a lady called Agnes Osman, who's in her 80s, uh, and they pray for her for a number of hours until she starts speaking in this strange language, which they all decide is Chinese. And apparently Agnes Osman spoke in Chinese for three days. That's the way the story goes. No one, of course, no one Chinese was there uh, to validate that interpretation of what was taking place. Um, hey? Um, so, in the corridor outside Charles Parham's class was an African-American man by the name of William Seymour whose Parham had graciously allowed to listen through the door, uh, sitting outside. <sighs> um, so William Seymour is an African-American man, um, half blind, uh, and or blind in one eye, who hears this talk and decides he quite likes this idea gets invited to go to Los Angeles um, and lead a, take on a church community. Now, um, of course, this is not a white church community in the USA in the early 20th century, um, but he's asked to go there and, and, and preach, and he gets up and he preaches his first message on how people should be baptized in the Spirit, um, which is its own, which he interpreted in a particular kind of way, and that that would result in some kind of experience and some kind of weird phenomena like speaking in tongues, which, if you've not bumped into that before, sounds like a very strange thing to do. So he got booted out of that church after his first sermon. And a family in the church said, well, why don't you come to our house and have a prayer time, a prayer meeting, because we we're interested in this idea. And... That prayer time, that prayer meeting starts to happen regularly and then grows and then turns into a church and turns into something that becomes known as the Azusa Street Revival. Anyone ever heard of the Azusa? Oh, we've got some Azusa Street Revivalists here today. Um, now, oh, I think I even have a, I just click A, is that what I do? Oh, there's William Seymour and there's um, the building in which the Azusa Street Revival was held. 
church meetings every night of the week for three years. Um, yeah, that's right. And you all say, yes, please, this is what we've been crying out for, Shane. Then we'll give some money. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so meetings every night for three years and not short meetings. It's probably true that we could say that. Uh, it was called the Apostolic Faith Mission. They sat on hay bales. So it was in stark contrast to the kind of churches of the establishment that were around at the time. Um, it was a lot, of, a lot of poor African-American and Hispanic people were participating in the church. Um, but also a lot of um, white Christians also participating. Men and women participating together all were kind of having these vivid experiences. So they had these tarrying rooms upstairs that you, you would, so you would go upstairs and you would tarry until you received the spirit, which is to say you basically lock yourself in a room and stay there until you get it. Um, and if you left before you got it, then you didn't have enough persistence or faith. And so you stayed there until you got it, whatever it was. Now, um, what happens is people start traveling into Azusa Street. They start hearing about what's taking place and traveling in. And so you've got people kind of coming in, staying for a while, and then passing through. And so this kind of spirituality begins to spread um, around the place. So there's a few interesting things I want to say about this. Um, one is there's this breakdown of gender roles within this early kind of movement. Um, so because the, one of the framing scriptures was this, this Pentecost narrative in the book of Acts, which I don't think you've got to yet in your series, but um, where, where Peter says well, what's happening is that the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, uh, sons and daughters, old and young. And so men and women together were having these experiences. Men and women together were um, prophesying, speaking in tongues, doing all of these unusual things. Um, so there's this breakdown of the roles between men and women. We're, we're historically within many of those movements, it's men who were the were supposed to be the leaders and the teachers. Um, there's also this radical racial integration that takes place in that community in these early years. Um, and so the newspapers uh, heard what was going on in this particular strange thing, because there were thousands of people coming, coming through this community and, and, and people visiting from all over the world to try and see what was taking place. And so newspaper reporters would turn up and they found the whole thing very kind of overwhelming because it was, you know, you go in, you've got a room, it's packed with people, but, but there's no pews. Um, the meeting doesn't seem to be being sort of led by one person in particular, although William Seymour played a, a certain kind of role. Um, there were these wild experiences that people seemed to be having that for sort of very civilised folk seemed uh, a bit scandalous. But what was most scandalous was the racial integration. So uh, the newspaper articles and reports that you can still read from some of the Los Angeles papers in the, in, in the sum, so this is around 1906 to 1909, that's the, the three years in question, is just filled with these scathing attacks on the way in which, you know, um, a white man praying for a, an African-American woman um, and 
And because, the, you know, in these days there's, there's a lot of falling over that seems to be happening when people get prayed for. Um, that's a whole thing. Uh, and so, you know, there was, a lot of there was a lot of physical touch involved between uh, these various people who were participating in these meetings as well. So that was one of the big scandals of the Azusa Street Revival was this kind of, aside from the wild experientialism, was this racial integration uh, that seemed to be taking place. Um, now, Charles Fox Parham comes to see how his protege is doing and comes to town and turns up and says, this is an outrage and tries to take, um, take over the church. Um, but, of course, he's booted out. Um, Charles Fox Parham, curious man, imprisoned sometime later for being gay, which is his story is a, is a just a conundrum. To me. <laughs> yes. um, so over time, so William Seymour starts out leading this community and saying. Tongue, speaking in tongues, for example, is, is the real evidence of what, of, of, we know the Spirit's got you if you've started speaking in tongues. Um, but then he starts to understand tongues itself as this way of breaking down the divisions between the different groups of people who are participating in the community. And so tongues was in some way a way for people to um, all participate together in something that transcended all of them. And then over time, he came to say that, in fact, the real evidence of the spirit at work in, in our lives is love. And so, ironically, um, the Pentecostal tradition itself ignored the love part <laughs> that he came to over time and just took the, the tongues part as being the big thing. Um, in some respects, I think, speaking in tongues, which is a... Gosh, I find, why am I talking about speaking in tongues so much? I ask myself internally when I have this conversation because it's such a peculiar thing and who knows what to do with it. Uh, <laughs> but the way they understood it at the time, and to some degree, was actually this freedom from the... If you think about the kind of religious conversation and the religious discourse, and not just religious but social who had the social power in the early 20th century in the US? It was white men. And something like speaking in tongues or other kind of unusual experiences and phenomena were seen as some way a protest against um, that dominant discourse, that dominant conversation that many poor or pe uh, people or people of color were not participants in that conversation. They were excluded from that conversation. And so these kind of wild experiences in some way gave them a sense of power, a sense of empowerment and a sense of a voice. We see a similar thing happening in places like India at, the, at, at around a similar time. Uh, there was an Indian woman by the name of Pandita Dramabai who um, ran this home for children, and then it ended up becoming the center of this kind of Indian charismatic spiritual movement, um, grounded in Christianity, fused with some aspects of Indian spirituality. Uh, and one of the things that's really notable when you go back and read the accounts of what was taking place there 
was that India, which had this very rigid caste system embedded within it, um, again, this, this movement in India where people together shared in this experience of the spirit, it disrupted the caste system that otherwise would keep them apart and they found themselves um, coming together in ways that otherwise they wouldn't. So for all of the stuff that kind of honestly tends to make me a little bit uncomfortable when I talk about some of this because I don't know how I feel about it, at the same time there's this really interesting um, social phenomenon that's happening in the communities that are experiencing this kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah? Oh, that's good. Thank you for affirming me. All right. Um, so I want to make a few observations then about what happens over time. Um, and what happens over time is that institutionalization kicks in. So in the US, for example, it's about 10 years before the movement splits again on racial lines, maybe less than 10 years. And so um, well before 1920, you've actually now, you now have two Pentecostal movements. You have the black Pentecostal movement and the white Pentecostal movement. And it very much has stayed that way uh, since in many respects. Um, women who were empowered in the early years, some of the most famous um, early preachers and leaders, both here in Australia and also in North America and elsewhere in the Pentecostal movement were women. Um, but then over time, one of the things that happened as the movement grew is that, is that people are like, oh, we're still seen as a bit weird, so we'd like to sort of join forces with the evangelicals and, and the other fundamentalists. And what they found is, oh, to do that essentially... We can't look silly, like, by, you know, having women speak is, is making us look a bit silly. Um, having people of colour speak is making us look a bit silly. So let's, let's shut all of that down and fold our way into the system. Um, in New Zealand, um, the AOG movement, which is like a classic Pentecostal denomination, if anyone's been an AOG in their life, my parents are AOG pastors, so that explains a lot. Um, the AOG in New Zealand was started by a divorced Hispanic American um, and the irony of the fact that 20 years later the movement outlawed anyone divorced from being involved in ministry when the person who started the movement was themselves a divorcee you know, so what you see over time is something that's kind of happening on the edge amongst people who for all sorts of reasons are often excluded from the dominant discourse um, they're at the centre of it and then over time pushed to the edge and the folding back into the, the normal kind of social boundaries and structures and exclusionary practices that are so familiar to many of us, I'm sure. So I want to make a couple of observations about this and then have a bit of conversation, a bit of feedback. Um, one of the things I find really interesting to reflect on, both as I read some of the New Testament texts about the Spirit and also as I reflect on some aspects of this history, is that sometimes this kind of, the, the strange and unusual phenomena that we would associate with this form of spirituality, that seems strange from a certain perspective. I mean, if you grew up in Africa, it probably doesn't seem strange at all. But for, to a Western rationalist mind, some of it seems very odd, right? But what often happens when this kind of thing erupts is that it erupts at the center, uh, at the margin, sorry, not at the center. So often when this kind of unusual um, spirituality experience encounter of the spirit takes place, 
is that it takes place among people who are often at the margin rather than the centre of the institution. Because this kind of thing, you know, is very disruptive if it was to take place in the centre of a large institution that relies on financial sustainability, everybody behaving the right way, doing the right thing, and listening to the person in charge. So if you've got a, if you've got a model built on that, um, the last thing you want, if, you, if that relies on everyone listening to the person in charge, is someone else popping up and saying, actually, God's saying something different. Uh, that's not what you want, right? So, so these things tend to erupt on, on the margin and then act to disrupt the kind of social categories and the social order. That happens both in the New Testament and it also happens in these, some of these early Pentecostal um, churches, often among people who have no voice. The fastest growing, the places where Pentecostal, even though when, often when people think of Pentecostalism, they think of, what do they think of? Tele-evangelists, perhaps, Hillsong, um, I don't know, whatever comes to mind. But the places where it's actually genuinely growing are Africa and Latin America and Asia, still among people who are often not really considered as important from uh, a Western discourse kind of point of view. Um, so if we think about the fact that, that it tends to happen um, outside of the centre, among people who, for whatever reason, are excluded and pushed to the edge. Then it is its own form of kind of disruptive countercultural presence. If we think about where the spirit is at work in this particular kind of way, I'm not trying to limit what we mean by the spirit, but if we understand just this particular kind of presence of the spirit, if we're going to talk about it in those terms, um, then it, is, it does function in some ways as a disruptive countercultural presence. It did this among the early church in many respects, uh, and it has done that. It's been like that since. Um, something like prophecy in the mouths of people who have no voice in society becomes an incredibly potent form of expression and resistance. Uh, I was talking to, as a part of some of my research, talking to uh, a Maori um, Pentecostal minister or apostle, a prophet. And one of the things he commented on uh, in telling his own story was that when he first felt like he wanted to go into ministry in the church, there was no real way for him to do so because the Bible colleges and seminaries and institutions were um, run by white people who demanded a certain kind of way of going about training for ministry that just did not in any way, was not in any way accessible to him as a young Maori man within New Zealand. But he said one of the things that he, that became incredibly important for him was the sense that he had had this experience and that he could even say, I think this is what God is saying. And that in some way empowered him into a life of ministry within the church that he wouldn't have been able to have if he hadn't have had that kind of experience. So for him, that experience was one of finding a voice, even finding legitimacy, and finding a place of a place to stand, if you like. Um, and I think that's really interesting to pay attention to. But if we reflect on what happens over time, 
I think probably what happens is that those experiences or that kind of phenomenon or even that sense of where is the spirit, who is the spirit working among, who is the spirit speaking through, who is filled with the spirit or whatever it might be. Over time, um, the institutionalization of that tries to co-opt what's happening at the edge, kind of domesticate it, bring it to the center, and then try and replicate it. Uh, so that's what that says. So what does this mean in practical terms? Well, what it means is you then have a, a young person in a Pentecostal church growing up being made to feel deeply anxious about the fact that they can't manage to speak in tongues no matter how hard they try. So an experience that kind of erupted at the edge among marginalized people is brought to the center and then imposed upon people to say, now we want to be affirmed like this. We want to have the experience of the spirit here at the center. I was at a, uh, when I was 16 years old at a youth meeting uh, with an Australian preacher actually, so that's probably why it's, you know, probably. Uh, Jeff Beecham, I think that was his name. Um, and I remember being in the middle of this room with about 300 teenagers, and he went along and laid hands upon every person. You know, it was the kind of, I'm going to lay hands upon every single person who's here. And everyone's like, oh, every person. Um, don't even have to have an altar call. He's going to come to us. Uh, and every single young person in that room fell over under the power of the Spirit, except for me. And I happened to be standing right in the center of the room. And so I just... And there were no, all the chairs had been taken out. And so I looked around the room and there was 300 bodies on the floor and me. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I suddenly feel, what's, what's that? Oh, lucky, yeah, lucky I have no social awkwardness. So I coped very well. <sighs> um, so the feelings that arise when you have, when you're sort of, you seem like you're not having the kind of experience you're supposed to be having. And then when someone takes you aside after that meeting and says, oh, I saw you didn't receive anything. I'd like to pray for you again because uh, I didn't have the appropriate experience that had been now brought to the center and was trying to be replicated. And so he prayed for me and getting a bit frustrated <laughs> that nothing, you know, that I wasn't doing the thing. And then he just, so he ended up just saying, you know what? The Holy Spirit's just bouncing off you and can't get in. Um, <laughs> yeah, those were the days. So um, what's happened there is that this kind of countercultural disruptive presence at the edge has been co-opted by, by something that's become institutionalized and is now becoming its own form of social power and control over people, uh, in which case it's been flipped on its head in terms of what kind of function I think it's supposed to have. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, um, And actually, ironically then, it becomes another tool of marginalization and oppression for people rather than becoming the kind of uh, countercultural, social, transformative function that it might have had at the margin and at the edge. So what does this mean for us? What, what do we do with some of this? If I think about the work of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, the activity of the Spirit, 
um, whatever we might mean by that. My guess is that it might, in fact, look quite different at the edge than it does at the center. Because what the people at the center of, so, you know, cis, straight, white guy speaking, um, at the center of social power, those who already hold that power, probably need something quite different. Perhaps what is not needed at the center is even more power, <laughs> but is in fact to in some way have that power undone and subverted. And this is not to say not experience the spirit, but that the experience of the spirit at the center might look quite different than it does at the edge. Um, because there might be quite something quite different that is needed there. And so, in fact, often what needs to be disrupted at the center are the exclusionary practices that keep people at the edge. Um, so, what that suggests to me is that when we talk about the spirit, the hope, I suppose, is to cultivate a sense of openness, openness to whatever it is that we might feel that God is wanting to do or say. Rather than prescribing that activity or saying it's going to look like this and so we're looking for that thing, we are in some way, I think, encouraged to cultivate or foster uh, an openness to some kind of divine presence and allow that divine presence, the spirit, to be at work, especially in relation to some of these modes of power and marginalization and center in the edge, and to ask ourselves, what might the spirit be doing now? In some ways, even when I still use that language, I have, even as I'm saying that to you, two conflicting things going on in me at the same time. One which says, just stop saying that. <laughs> and the other saying, I think it's still okay to say that, but, but you mean something very different by it than you used to mean, you know? But when certain phrases, certain ways of talking have become triggering for people, then it's, it can be quite hard to re-engage with some of that language, even if you know you mean something different by it than you used to. One of the things that kind of openness to the spirit means for me is someone who just through um, who I am means I have a certain degree of social power. The openness to the spirit means actually listening to the edge and saying, what is happening at the margin? What is God saying to me through the voices and experiences of those who otherwise have been pushed out of the center? Maybe that's the kind of experience of the spirit that I need. Um, so we become open to God, open to the spirit, not just in some kind of... Um, lightning bolt from the sky, but in the face of the other. Yeah? Okay. I hope that makes some sense for you. I've got a couple of questions. 
Because I think you do that here, eh? You talk, which is great. Um, so these are the kinds of things. You don't have to answer these questions specifically, but I thought this might be a way to just open up the conversation. And how do you normally do this, Shane? Do you like pass a microphone? Is that what you do? Ah, oh, yes, by the awkward pauses, and then everyone says, that was the most amazing thing I've ever heard, but no one knows what it was. <laughs> this microphone gets passed, so I get up from the chair. Oh. No, 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 look, you've got a, you've got a baby. Um, so what has been your experience of the Spirit in the church? It might have been nothing, which is, or it might have been very different from what I've just been talking about. But when you think about the Spirit, and you'll have varied experiences of that, if you think about those two kinds I was talking about, the disruption at the margin or the kind of co-opted, replicated version at the center, what's been your experience? Where, where has your own tradition and story taken you? Does that question make sense? Hopefully. So um, there's a hand. I'm just reflecting back on, on times I've spent in the Pentecostal church. It was about three years ago. It wasn't a long season, about six, eight months or something. Um, but I felt, as a, I've only been a Christian for like four years, so it was a, a new experience, but it was a good one because I was actually experiencing something rather than just receiving knowledge or contemplating something and I found that I was idolizing the guest speaker like if there was an international um, speaker that was there at the church and they did an altar call and there was like four people that were doing the the hands-on or the praying then I would want to make sure that I was in the good line for the people because <laughs> they had they had more so I just like in reflecting back at that time, there was this this expectation that the Holy Spirit would rest more, not just at the at the altar, but um, with certain people. Um, and then my response was like internally, I felt like I I was wanting to fall, expected to fall, happy to fall, um, sort of obliging my own idolized version of of this guest speaker. Um, and, and a whole lot of different stories like that. But after maybe a year or two of chasing, um, chasing those experiences, chasing the next hit, chasing uh, the next empowered conference or that sort of thing, I realized that I wasn't actually getting filled up where I wanted to be. My heart wasn't getting changed the way I wanted to. I was just getting this, this spiritual injection, this, this hit that died off after a couple of days. So... Um, I've actually deliberately stepped back from those spiritual buzzes um, because I, it was like, it was like, it literally was like a drug. It was, it was like, this isn't getting me to where I want to, so I'm going to go cold turkey on that and try and find uh, what is a deeper, more real experience of the spirit. Um, and I, I'm so much, I feel more at peace and more calm with that search than the, the, you know, the more dramatised version. Um, not, not discounting those experiences, but more like, I, I love the point when you're saying it was at the, at the fringe or on the edge, 
those experiences were more important to me than ones that were happening right in the middle of the altar with the, the power preacher. So. While we're here. Um, I really resonated with your experience of being the person in the room of 300 who was standing up and tying into that idea that not only is there, like you feel excluded if you've missed out and you don't know why, but this idea that it's your fault that, you know, the spirit's bouncing off you because you aren't open enough or you don't have a good enough attitude or, you know, maybe you've got unconfessed sin. And so there's always this anxiety about whether you're performing well enough and whether people are looking at you and seeing that, you know, you're the one standing up and that means something and whether you should just fall down. And I think, you know, there's this sense of, well, I'm, I'm not going to do something that's inauthentic, but you wonder how many people are just falling down so they're not the one standing up in the room and being stared at. And so I think a lot of that is nothing to do with anything about your faith or growing or your journey. It's just all about optics and anxiety around whether people think you're good enough to get something. And I never experienced anything. Didn't, didn't question that other people's experiences were real and, and felt things, you know, felt something inside me but never had any of those dramatic experiences and there's a lot of feeling around how much of that was my fault and what it meant and and now I think well that you know I don't know why but it doesn't mean there's something wrong with me but that was definitely the idea that you get thanks I'm not sure how I'll be able to articulate this, but I'm looking at the question, how's my experience of the spirit been in the church? And I've been through all sorts of <laughs> shapes and forms. Um, and I'm, I'm pondering the idea of being on the edge. There, probably a core part for me will be when I sense there's ego. There will be decisions that I'm, I, I'm feeling an invitation to enter into something. Sometimes it can be a bit crazy. Sometimes it can actually be the opposite of what I would – in fact, often it will be the opposite of what I would do. But the invitation is in the, in the sense of the spirit for me will be a take a risk in this. Is it a risk for the sake of other people? Even talking now is a little bit of that. Is it for this? Is it? Is there? Is there a sense of risk that is actually a calling on me to, to take to step into. Into into something that I'm being invited to. Um, it might be to pray for someone. It might there be all sorts of shapes and forms in which it will take. It might look very safe, from the outside. It might look very radical. I don't presuppose what the outcome of that will look like, but there will be an invitation to do something which will be outside the norm of what I would do. And it would be a sense in which it's a requiring of me a humility, which might not look like that from the outside, if you see what I mean. And I and I can I'm just filtering back over years and years of this, and I can't presuppose at any point what that looks like. Um, but generally speaking, well, it's, as I say that, um, there's a sense in which it's been the right call to do that thing. That makes sense in any sense, in any regard. But what it might look like could be, could, could be, 
could take all sorts of forms. Mm. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, listening to your talk made me just realize how penty I was growing up. Now, all these things like I remember all this weird stuff that we did. Um, yeah, I would say that my experience of the spirit has been incredibly complicated in, in the sense of I can definitely point to moments of profound peace, healing, uh, the occasional very physical bodily sense of presence that totally resonate with mine wasn't the falling oh no they all did fall down but um any toronto blessing-esque people had uh, the holy laughter yeah i was at this meeting and everyone was getting the holy laughter and getting drunk in the spirit and i was literally the only person standing there being like oh it's because i'm gay that's why um <laughs> jesus doesn't want me to be happy um and so it's this profound moment of kind of these quiet moments alone of experience of, of encountering something which I made sense of as being the Holy Spirit. And also moments kind of, I guess, at the center of these moments of taking risk, of kind of getting this inclination of, oh, I feel like I'm supposed to pray for this person or this random thought has popped into my head I'm going to share that and then that having quite profound impacts for for someone and vice versa for me random people coming up going I just feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to tell you this and being like that's exactly what I needed to hear um, but then the other part for me was and this is a reflection on your talk from Friday night my experience of the Holy Spirit was this continual affirming of me as emotional, um, as a young gay man who was desperately in love with God, whatever the bleep that means, um, and who so wanted to walk that path that had pretty much every other signifier in my life going, no, that's wrong. You are hearing from false spirits that are telling you otherwise and this is demonic and again having these profound moments of affirmation for who I was and then having gosh I'm so pent having dreams and um these like this sense of actually being led out of the church um and going no that's supposed to be planted and rooted in the house of the Lord. Um, like, this can't be God. Um, and then this this journey of kind of walking and wandering down all of these different paths, meeting all of these different people and having these experiences of people well and truly outside of, you know, the club, going, oh, but, like, this feels like the Holy Spirit. This feels like Jesus too. And you're a bad pagan. Um, <laughs> or you're this and... It's kind of only really been, like, as much as I've wanted to like, just throw everything out with Christianity, this constant, but I'm definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm 
encountered something um, which I can only make sense of as the Holy Spirit. And then it's been this journey of going, what did I experience and what was genuine, quote unquote, for podcasters, um, and what was just a very human, fleshy reaction to good music, crowd dynamics, and how do you kind of sort that out and what's, what is the, the real genuine, does that bear the, the fruit of love? I think that's kind of where I'm at now is I think there's something there, but if it, if it doesn't come out of relationship and love and genuine listening and curiosity for, we have no clue what the Spirit is doing unless we listen and take risks and go, could be royally stuffing this up, um, then it does kind of become this weird culty power damaging thing. And thank you for listening to my mini sermon. <laughs> Love offering at the end. Thank you. Um, I think uh, uh, I'd sort of put myself maybe at the, um, the centre of it. Um, and I kind of feel that I was probably maybe the ones that maybe did fit in a bit with it. I was probably lucky. And uh, it's nice to be able to realise from people saying that they were more on the edge um, and then look back and say, yeah, that, you know, that would have been an experience of some. So it's been eye-opening for that. But I guess what I just wanted to add was um, uh, my experience that that was some of that stuff going on with laying hands and, um, and that kind of thing. Uh, but in my experience, it was a really positive thing because it was coupled with uh, it was coupled with uh, people actually caring for you, who you were, and it wasn't just uh, let's put our hands on you and see if we can get a party trick happening. It was a bit more of coupled with, okay, well, how are you going? What's happening? Uh, let's pray for you specifically with what's happening. And you know, part of it, as a younger person, you were attracted to the feeling of the spirit or whatever, something like that, uh, and probably part attracted to the party trick too, but what probably kept me going was the fact that these uh, mature and just decent people cared for you, and they coupled the element of the party trick with uh, just utter decency and desire to have the best for you. So, um, yeah, I just thought I'd add that because I have seen a decent model, and it's nice for people to know that that can occur, and it's probably not an element of um, some visiting pastor. It's just from people who were uh, sort of the earth, good humans, so. Thanks, Pete. Oh, last one? Lucky last. Uh, well, my spirit about, my experience about the spirit, probably, well, your conversation encouraged me to just share my experience with you and um, how it was. Uh, um, your story that you say that you got isolated at some point where you were among 300 other teenagers. It caused me to think of, um, reflect back to the time that when I was searching about Christianity and uh, um, I remember it was, it was a time that I, I was um, living with probably um, five other Muslim friends and uh, 
that's the point I was trying to find about Christianity and something that I wasn't allowed to, um, to follow where I come from. And I remember when those friends realized that I'm going to church, they were looking down at me because from their perspective, I was a big sinner. But I remember I said to myself, um, I will find the truth even if I have to lose my current friends. And uh, going to different churches, and I realized that Christianity is something that is about love. And it was like, I'm sure I would find some Christian friends that they would love me for what I want to follow. And yeah, it was something that I always, it always touched me that following Christ and being among, among Christians, it has been always my dream. And the fact that in this country I can follow that without any, any um, restriction, that's great. And I must say the spirit, I, I felt like I could understand the spirit when I could understand the love of Christ. That was a turning point in my life that I realized that someone loved me. It's the God of Islam is God of punishment, but God of Christianity is about God of love. And uh, yeah, I must say at some points when I realized that how much God loved me, the spirit was so strong and it always reassured me throughout my journey in this country because you know I migrated on my own and it has been always him at the center of my life that guided me. At some point I was like, not listening to him and it was like the consequences that I saw was like here you are God told you through the Holy Spirit but and yeah the journey of Christianity is amazing and definitely I think we are blessed to be able to talk to God through Holy Spirit thanks for listening much. Sorry. thank you um it's so beautiful listening to just such a diverse range of of stories and of experiences, and as I kind of, you know, reflect on that, seeing the ways in which, whatever we mean by the Spirit, and if I was to ask you all, you'd all probably describe whatever you mean by that slightly differently to one another. Whatever we mean by experiencing God, or the divine, or the divine presence, or the Holy Spirit, At its best, it becomes moments and opportunities and invitations to, um, to include, to be included, to love, to affirm, um, and if we can foster that kind of conversation, I think, we find ourselves in a, in a, in a good space. That's the hope. But if we co-opt it and turn it into ego and power and the ways we then want to see it play out, then it becomes a very damaging conversation that can exclude and marginalise and cause anxiety. And so the invitation to us is, well, what kind of conversation about the spirit do we want to have? What story goes along with the way we talk about God. Um, can I say a prayer? Is that a good way to finish? And then Tamsin's going to do communion. Am I allowed to pray before it or not? Don't, don't push me to the margin, Shane.
Um, <laughs> oh, just out on the street? Okay, thank you. All right, I'll just say a prayer and then I'll pass the Thames in. Spirit who is present, who breathes in and out, who holds all things together, who is love. May we sense an invitation into something beautiful and real. And may we hold our stories together in ways that help us to see you in the face of another. Amen. Tamsin. I think all these, these children need deliverance, guys. I think we're all there on coffee. <laughs> that fits Fitzroy blessing. It's all happening. Um, Frosty, thanks. Um, thanks for, for that. It's, I feel like you're a friend. You know, it's uh, really nice to have friends across, across the waters. The, co- the coughing continues. Um, we're going to finish today um, with communion. Um, is, and it's something that we do every week here um, in the form of this or in gathering and eating together um, and just hearing so often this word invitation that Frosty was talking about and there's even through what Mitch was saying, there's this sort of invitation personally that the Spirit invites us um, into love and then the invitation moves from us to invite, you know, there's just this opening out of the invitation continues um, and that we come to this this meal together being invited um, and carrying that invitation beyond the walls of our time together. Um, you don't have to come and take communion. Um, you're welcome to take communion because you're a tiny bit hungry now. We're getting to 10 past 12 and you just want a, a big chunk of cracker to get you through to the next thing you're about to eat. You're more than welcome to participate. Um, you're more than welcome to sit and um, just to, to be in the room with us. Um, and, yeah. So if you want to come up, crack the kids can – this is where Hemi, Hemi shines. Um, come and get a bit of cracker and a bit of juice and we'll gather in a big circle um, around the space before we finish up. So please come up. Amy's up to a third. <laughs> um, let me pray for us and then we'll eat and drink. Um, Lord, thank you for uh, the spirit and the mystery, the mystery of the spirit and um, just the, yeah, the, the love on the margins and um, that we continue to Um, and uh, that we are invited um, to encounter this love and we are invited to um, see it and discover it in all that we do. Um, Be with us as we um, enter into this this time together. um, As we enter.